going to start off a little different today. We uh, are starting a new series in prayer, and I want to read you a verse that just sort of, I wanted to sort of speak over you. If you're watching this online, just sort of receive this. And I'll come back to this verse in just a few minutes, but it's from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Just let this speak over you. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety. But in everything, with prayer and supplication. Supplication is a word that means that we, we ask on our behalf, but also on behalf of others. We, we talk to God for others. And everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we let our requests be known. But listen to how he answers those prayers. <clears throat> and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> the answer to our prayers is not always what we think it is going to be or what we think we want, and, and the answer to our prayer is not always an answer to a want. Sometimes it's just the peace. Sometimes it's just the presence of God. Would you pray with me? God, we're going to start and end this service today with a prayer as a community of faith gathered in this room and online. And we want to put things out of our mind for just a second. As we talk about prayer and as we talk about uh, especially prayer in crisis, we know that we are all um, in crisis, that there's something in all of our heads that just won't let us go. And Father, I pray today that through the worship that we've experienced and through the conversations that we've had in the lobby and in this room, through the words that you will speak through Scripture, I, I pray that we will begin to release control of our anxiety, that we can be anxious for nothing and in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. We can let you know what we need. You already know what we need. But we get on the same page with you. And we receive that your peace will cover over us. And for that, we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Occasionally, we do a, a prayer series. We, we talk for a few weeks about prayer. And I think the last one that we did, we called it Dangerous Prayers. And one of the most dangerous prayers that we can pray is, Lord, make me a better Christ follower. Make me a, a more mature disciple. Make me a better Christian. Because guess what? If we really mean that prayer, then we're giving him permission to take away all the things in our lives that don't make us a better Christian and add all the things, whether we want to do them or not, that make us a better Christian. It's a dangerous prayer. Well, in this series, I want to talk for about four weeks on some of the, the more specific uh, ap uh, attitudes, disciplines, habits, whatever you call them, that are part of prayer. I want to talk today about how we pray in crisis. 
I want to talk about how we pray for others. We call that supplication or intercession. I want to talk how we uh, add fasting, another spiritual discipline, because so often those are linked together, prayer and fasting. Uh, I want to talk about how we pray in solitude, how we pray without the, the white noise around us, without, without all the stuff that's going on. But, but today I want to talk about prayer in crisis. Now, these are some scriptures that we're going to be going for. If you want to go ahead and, and sort of take a mental note, we're going to spend some time in Matthew, Philippians, and, and in the middle of all that, we're going to go all the way over to the Old Testament to Psalms. So if it takes you a minute, I, I know that with your swipey thing, it's hard to put bookmarks, but get, you get the idea. Here's where I want to go. I want us to talk about praying in a way that's not so much a problem to be solved, but a person to connect with. You know, a lot of times uh, I'm, I'm guilty if there's a problem or a crisis, I want to solve it, fix it, or blame somebody. You know, I, I'm a, I can do this. I can, I can do this on my own. I can do this by myself. I can take charge. I can be in control. So I'm going to solve it or I'm going to fix it. And if I can't solve it and I can't fix it, I want to blame somebody else for why it's wrong. And, and all three of those are, are control issues, right? And so part of what I want to talk about today is how we relinquish control even if we don't see a clear pathway even if we're not so sure that it's going to work out, even if we're not certain how this crisis will be resolved, I want to talk about prayer and crisis. And here's the deal. Our series is called, And When You Pray. Now, Jesus taught us how to pray. In the, in the passage we're going to look at briefly, He taught us how to pray. He taught us how not to pray. But it's an assumption that we do pray. It's an assumption that we have a conversation with God, that we look to Him as our higher power, our other, our authority, our protector, our redeemer, our creator, our savior. It, 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 he just assumes that we will have that conversation. You know, I have never done a wedding ceremony where I stood here and, and, I, and I said, do you promise to uh, love and honor and cherish and death do you part? Do you, do you, do you, do you, I do, I do. I have never said, do you promise that you'll talk to each other? Never said that. Never had to. Because it's kind of assumed that in a, in a love relationship but, uh, that, that you would have conversation, that you would communicate, that you would express feelings, that you would express desires, that you would express sadness, that, that those would be conversations that you have back and forth. So if we are intimate with God, it is a fair assumption that we would pray. He doesn't have to say if you pray. He would say when you pray. And he said that a whole bunch. This is from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. He says, and when you pray. Now, just fair warning. There is a, a principle in Scripture called the principle of repeated mention. 
And that's not really a technical kind of Bible study term. You do it as a parent. How many times do I have to tell you? Okay, the law of repeated mention. The more I say it, the more they understand that I mean it. Had a supervisor at seminary, and when he sent an email, it was subject to the three delete rule. We deleted it the first two times, and if he really meant it, he'd send it again. (laughs) When something is said over and over again, it's serious. And so in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus repeats three topics a number of times. He says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. So it's it's an assumption that we pray. It's an assumption that we give of our resources to the Lord's work, and I appreciate that so many of you do. And it's an assumption that occasionally we do without food, we do without something that's, that's meaningful to us in order for us to concentrate more fully on what God has done, is doing, and is about to do in our lives. So, so it, it is assumed when you give, when you fast, when you pray. And here he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Many of you have heard me say this before. The word hypocrite literally means mask wearer, like in the Greek theater, if you could, you know, didn't have the close-up IMAG shot, so so if somebody had a a mad character, they would build a big, oversized, exaggerated mask that that was a mad face, a a happy face, or a a contemplative face, but but they would wear an oversized mask, and a mask wearer was a hypocrite. It makes sense, right? A, a hypocrite is a mask wearer. You're not what you pretend to be. So he, do, he says, don't pretend pray. Don't fake pray. Don't just pray at a meal so you can get on with the salad. Don't, don't, don't fake pray. Don't, don't be like those people. Don't, don't pray just because everybody expects you to pray. Oh, you go to church, right? Pray on demand. Push J5, that's prayer. Eh, don't fake pray. Because those people love to stand and, and be heard. And the, the better translation, if they've received their reward, eh, they aren't heard. God doesn't pay any attention to that. I, I've heard that mothers can differentiate the type of cry of a child. You know, that's the I'm mad at my brother cry. That's the I'm really hurt cry. And mothers will pay attention to the I'm really hurt cry, but they don't really pay attention to the I'm mad at my brother cry. Empty prayers aren't even heard by God. He, he, he goes ahead and says that. He says, when you pray, just go into your room. Just get by yourself. Let, let your prayers be something that's between you and God. Yes, sometimes we pray in public. We, we love to pray as a community of faith, but, but, but for the most part, can you, can you just get alone with God and have that conversation? And your Father will reward you. And now he's, don't pray like this. Don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. That's an empty, uh, an interesting word, empty phrases, Many of you know the commandment that says don't take the Lord's name in vain, and we think it's don't cuss, don't, don't be profane. But the word vain, don't take the Lord's name in vain, it literally means empty. Don't take the Lord's name in an empty way. 
And I, and I think how many oh my gods I hear during the course of a day. And it's an empty phrase. It means nothing. And he says, when we take the Lord's name in vain, whether it is profanity or casual, he said that's, that's empty. And so many prayers are empty. Don't heap up empty phrases. Don't, 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 don't just recite stuff. If you're going to say, oh my God, then really address him. Really mean that. Really talk to him. Really exclaim to him. And that, that of course, is possible. He says, I think they're going to be heard for many words. Don't be like them. Your, your father knows what you need. I mean, there's so many times I've got a list, and I, I just want to get my list out and say, God, you can read. I can read. Here's my list. <laughs> my father knows what I need. He, he knows what you need. He, he's out ahead of you on that. And so our, our series is called, And When You Pray. Not if you pray, not if you might pray, but when you pray, because it is assumed by Jesus, it's assumed in Christianity that, that when we have something on our mind, we first go to the Father, because that's who we think about, somebody who can do something about it. Famous preacher that I, I kind of follow, he said, prayer is to the soul what oxygen is to the body. Show me a person who does not pray, I'll show you a person who is spiritually dead. Righteous people pray. It's, it's an assumption. It's, it's just part of what we do. So today our subject is crisis. How do we pray in crisis? And, and, and I guess first we should define prayer, a, a conversation that we have with God, and maybe I should define crisis. It is said, I've said it up here, that you're either in a crisis, have just been in a crisis, or are about to be in a crisis. We, we live in our culture in a state of perpetual crisis, even before we called it pandemic. We joked in staff meeting this morning that there probably was a COVID-18 and 17 and 16 and 15 and all the way back. If we're all the way to 19, we've been in crisis for a while. And that, that makes sense, that, that we always have crisis, and, and some people have a different kind of crisis. I, I imagine as soon as I said it, you thought of something that's going on in your life right now, something with a job, something with a, a family member, uh, uh, a death in your family, a, a job loss in your family, a, a, a relative, a, a child, a parent who's, who's making poor decisions, uncertainty about your finances. There's, there's always a crisis diagnosis by a doctor. And so how do we approach God in crisis? How do we not just heap up empty words? How do we, how do we say words that matter when we are in the midst of something that should cause us anxiety? That if I'm being really honest, I can't fix it. I can't solve it. I can't blame somebody. And it occurred to me that kind of the first part of that is that we acknowledge that what God has promised us is not an answer to our prayer like we thought we might want, but He's promised us His presence to trust God in prayer, especially in crisis. We've got to know Him. 
I, I, I don't know, you know, when, when I want to turn something over to somebody, I really want it to be somebody who can do something about it. I've hardly ever asked to borrow money from somebody who doesn't have money. I mean, you know, I, I've hardly asked for a favor for somebody who's not in a position to grant that favor. Can you get me a job? Well, I don't have a job. Oh, well, you're probably the wrong person to ask. We, we don't do that. We ask if we trust and know somebody. I think no matter how old I get, my kids are always going to call me and ask me for money because I'll always give it to them. They, they know that I can. They know that I will. It's not that they trust me or don't trust me. It's not that they know me or don't trust me. They just, they just know and trust me enough to know that I will respond to what they ask. And our Heavenly Father is that way. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. The one we took that, don't be anxious about anything. We, we are a, a therapied culture because we're anxious about everything. But in every situation, every crisis situation, with thanksgiving, God, you're on this. And the peace of God, that's, that's all I can ask for is peace. Relative has died, give me peace. Job lost, give me peace. I, I don't know how it's all going to work out. Maybe the way I want it to work out is not the best way for it to work out. But Lord, give me a peace that things are under control. Give me a peace that I have given my issues, my crisis, to somebody who can do something about it. Psalm 46, way back in the, uh, the, the middle of the Bible, if you let your Bible kind of fall open, usually it falls open to Psalms. I don't know about phones. I don't know how that works. But uh, if you let a Bible fall open, it kind of opens up to Psalms, which is the hymn book of the Hebrews. They, these are poems. These are songs. And about seven or 800 years before Christ, there was a, a, a battle that was going on, and, and the uh, Assyrian army, uh, uh, they, they came out of Nineveh. Today we would call it Mosul. They swept down to the, to the south and to the west, and, and they conquered the northern part of Israel, and now they were, they were uh, knocking on the door of Jerusalem itself, and, and, and the people of Israel were sort of shut up inside the city, and the, the army was approaching, probably with a lot of fanfare. And so one of their poets wrote this song, and he said, you know, God is our refuge and our strength. Martin Luther wrote a song about this. He called it, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. God's our refuge. He's our strength. Nothing about the enemy, nothing about the army. He's a present help in times of trouble. We can trust His presence. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. There was probably a sense that maybe there was an actual earthquake. Maybe it was the rumbling of the army as it approached the city walls. I, I don't know. But the, the, the poet, the, the songwriter says, we're not going to fear even though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, those its waters roar and foam, the mountains tremble at its swelling. You, you see what he's doing there? He's saying the mountains are in the sea, the sea is in the mountains. Everything's topsy-turvy. Everything's upside down. The world is not the way it ought to be. 
Good people have bad things happen to them. Bad people have good things happen to them. The, uh, the, the powerful take advantage of the not powerful. The world is topsy-turvy. It's not right. It's not just. It's not the way it should be. And the psalmist says, God's my refuge. He's my strength. He says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That's a really interesting statement because Jerusalem doesn't have a river in it. There's no water that flows through Jerusalem. There are some underground springs. The king at the time, Hezekiah, had dug a tunnel between the the main spring and the inside of the city so they could have fresh water in a siege, but there's no natural river. And he's saying, we don't have to have a river because we've got God. You see where he's going this? This is a God who's strong enough to do something about it. This is a God who's powerful enough to intervene. This is a God that is not going to make me fix it, solve it, or blame somebody. This is a God who can do something about it. He is the river. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. Remember that phrase. I'm going to come back to it in a second. The nation's raised. The kingdom's taught. The world's in chaos. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's behold the works of the Lord. He's brought desolations to the earth. He makes these war seas. They'll eventually end. This crisis will pass. This conflict will be over. And then the last verse, be still and know that I am God. This is the English Standard Version. I like the New American Standard better. It says, cease striving and know that I'm God. Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to solve it. Start, stop trying to blame somebody else. I told you to remember verse 5 when it says the help will come in the morning. Isaiah 37 is sort of the follow-up of this. And what actually happened in that siege is that the army of the Lord was, uh, was angels and they visited the army of the Assyrians and basically defeated them without a shot being fired. And it happened at dawn. So the psalmist write, help's going to come in the morning. And Jerusalem was never taken over by the Assyrians. The Babylonians got it 100 years later. But the Assyrians never got there. What's the point? For us to think that we can pray to God in crisis, we first got to know Him. And some of you are going, I wish I knew Him. I wish I had a person to turn my problems over to. I, I wish I had uh, uh, somebody who was powerful. I, I wish I could, could, could be confident that, that, that my crisis is not too small or not too big for him to handle. I wish I could take his hand. I wish I could take his word. I wish I could accept that he would do something about it. The psalmist got it. But when crisis arrives, our test is trust. We wonder if he really is strong enough to do something about it. We wonder if he really is mighty enough to do something about it. So I want to talk about a story that a lot of you are really familiar with. It's in Matthew chapter 14. And I need to give you a little bit of a a backstory with this first. I preached a sermon on this uh, chapter a couple of years ago, and I called it Jesus and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And, and it was basically where this very, very long day in the life of Jesus 
was one that we get to watch because the Scripture records all of it. This passage starts, this chapter starts, Matthew 14, 1, where Jesus hears about the senseless and tragic execution of his cousin, John the Baptist. And he's trying to get away to grieve. He's trying to get away to, to just uh, be by himself and think about it for a little while. But the crowds keep following him because he's been known as one who feeds, one who heals. And the story of the feeding of the 5,000, it sort of emerges at this point. And so, so we go from hearing about his cousin to the feeding of the 5,000. And I'll leap ahead a little bit. Then he walks on water. And, and then he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he has to heal a guy who's possessed with evil spirits. Long, long day. But it's in the middle of that that I want to kind of zero in on the way that Jesus helps us in crisis. And he does so in an unlikely way through the life of a disciple we know as Simon Peter. So here's the way it, it worked out, the backstory. He hears about his cousin. He feeds the 5,000. Now he's done with all that. All the people have been sent home. And Jesus said, I just need to get away. And so he made the disciples get in the boat to go before him to the other side, Matthew 14, verse 22. So he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, if you read the passage, there's, there's a couple of time clues in there. When evening was coming, when he fed the people. When evening had come, he, he was done. When evening came, he was finally alone, finally able to pray, and we think he stayed there for just a little bit of time because the next time we get a time stamp on the story, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Stay with me. So the boat that the disciples were in was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Some of you are going, why did they go out in a storm? Well, they didn't really, and they, were, they had been across this lake countless times. It was only four miles wide. It wasn't like it was a, a very long row. But this storm came up, as storms do on the Sea of Galilee. It's surrounded by mountains, so sometimes the, the wind whips through the mountains and sort of stirs up the water. And they were just really having a time of it. Jesus gets through with this time with the Lord. Uh, apparently, it's pretty late because it says it's the fourth watch of the night. And he came to them walking on the sea. Now, there's so much there. He says, go on ahead of us. And in another translation, another uh, one of the Gospels, it said he intended to pass them by. He was just going to kind of wait for them on the other side and let them to try to figure out how he got there. <laughs> Where's your boat? Who needs a boat? It's just a four-mile walk. And so he came to them walking on the sea. He has that prerogative. I do not. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. I'll give them a pass on that. That's fair. That's not normal behavior. He's walking on the water. And all of a sudden, Peter figures it out. He goes, it's the Lord. And the word that he uses there for Lord, let me go back and forth here for a second. Lord, that's a word that means personal friend. There are several words that are used for Lord in the Scriptures. Uh, that, that one is a personal, intimate, almost a first name. Um, oops, back up. 
So Jesus said, take heart, it is I. Bible study people, the Greek there is ego, I may, it is I. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have the words I am. God says, uh, Moses said, what's your name? He says, tell him I am. So it's a, it's a simple statement of existence that God is defined by his existence and his existence is defined by himself. Very, very cool, very deep, but stay with me. So he says, it's me. And Peter said, how cool is that? I want to do what you're doing. How many times do we say, I want to do what you're doing, but don't really think it through? <laughs> and Jesus said, okay, if you want, come on. So Peter got out of the boat. <laughs> Maybe he didn't think that through. Peter was kind of a, a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And he got out of the boat, he walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, he feels the wind. Not the fact that he's walking on water, he feels the wind. And he goes, this is quite a storm. That's a bad thing. He got afraid. He took his eyes off Jesus, as lots of sermons have said. And then he began to sink, and he said, Lord, save me. Watch what happens. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. We don't really get that he took hold of him and pulled him back up to where his feet were on solid water again. We, we don't get that. All we know is that they connected with a handshake. And then the next thing we know is that Jesus got him in the boat somehow. He, after he said, why did you doubt? Then when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. I see so much in this story. Peter was in crisis. Now, granted, sometimes we are in crisis because we make decisions that put us on crisis. I think Andy Stanley said, we're all just a decision away from being stupid. And there's, there, we do sometimes things that put us in crisis, but there's nothing in this story that indicates the disciples had done anything, thought anything, neglected anything. There was just a storm. They were in crisis. Peter decided to make it worse by testing out miracles are us on this particular episode. And so he gets out, he begins to walk on water, the crisis comes into full view as he realizes that there's a storm going on and this is not really a safe activity and so he began to sink, his faith had a little bit of a breach, he's in full crisis, he cries out to Jesus, Jesus take hold of him, they get back in the boat. So what does that have to do with prayer in crisis? Well, here we go. Judy and I moved here from New Orleans, and occasionally we get to go back home to New Orleans, and when you fly into New Orleans, no matter what time of year, there are roofs everywhere with blue tarps on them. They have hurricanes all the time. And every time a new hurricane hits, somebody loses some shingles or a lot of shingles or maybe the whole roof. And the whole idea is that if you don't put a tarp on your roof, it's going to leak because the best you can do is put a tarp on it and wait for the insurance to pay off. Well, I want to submit to you that sometimes prayer is like a tarp. And sometimes we just got to put a tarp 
over our crisis. So let's look again at what Peter did. First of all, he turned his attention to God. Lord, I want it to do something. I, we're in crisis here, but I want you to, uh, to do something. I want you to respond. I want you to be in charge. I want a miracle. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the first thing they say is to recognize that there is a higher power, that there is an authority beyond anything we can do. Turn to God. Turn to someone who is able to do something about it. Borrow money from somebody who's got money. Borrow power from somebody who's got power. Borrow grace from somebody who gives grace. But only when we admit our inadequacy, Lord, save me. I apparently can't do what you're doing. I apparently am not able to do what you're doing. I I am having trouble with what you're doing. I give up. You have to help me. I have to acknowledge that I have to turn over control of this crisis to someone who can do something about it. And God, I need you. I need your resources. I don't know what those resources are. If you were to ask Simon Peter, what is it that you need in this moment? Dry clothes. (laughs) I need to be in the boat and not in the lake. What did he get? He got Jesus' presence. He got his hand. He he got acknowledgement that things were going to be all right because God is God and we are not. And then he got in the boat and all he could do is worship. So many times after a crisis, after we look back and say, God, you didn't solve it like I was going to solve it. You didn't fix it like I was going to fix it. You didn't blame somebody like I was going to blame somebody. And nonetheless, I can see how you worked through this crisis. Sometimes we just got to throw a tarp over our crisis. I don't know what you're in the middle of. You do. And like I said, I want to close our time today a little differently. The band's going to come back up here in just a second. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then I'm just going to open this place for your crisis. (laughs) I'm going to open this altar for your crisis. It could be that you just need to throw a tarp right here and now. You need to turn to God, admit your inadequacy, rely on His presence, practice faith and worship. But I'm going to just, if you want to, there'll be pastors standing here, Alan's here, John's here. We'll be standing around here, but we're going to be way off to the side because this is for you. And if you want to just bring your crisis up here, we'll just have a little time as a church where we'll pray. And then Robert will close our time and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for being there in every circumstance. God, when we need you, which is all the time, why is it that we pray with so much more focus when we're in crisis? Why is it that our words probably aren't empty words when we need you? But God, teach me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a grandfather. Teach me that when I'm in crisis, I don't really need you to solve it. I just need you. God, if there's a person here who doesn't know you, there's a person here that says, I sure wish I had somebody to turn to. 
God, can this be the day that they meet you? Can this be the day that they say, Lord, I need you. Thank you for your gift of grace. Thank you that you don't judge me. You forgive me. I want to live my life with you. Can this be the day they say that to a a person near them, to a pastor, to a volunteer in a green shirt? Can this be the day that they meet Jesus? God, for the rest of us, we just bring our crisis to you. We bring it to you because you're the only one that can do something about it. You're God and we're not. And we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Come if you want to. Thank you.